Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, we're back. Finally, we figured out the source of our technical difficulties. The source being me. The people don't know um, that we had technical difficulties. <laughs> oh, true. So we were supposed to have this episode um, in part a few days before it's going to actually end up coming out. But a, a combination of a time crunch as well as my camera being crunched um, have unfortunately led to some technical difficulties on our end. But nonetheless... We are back. I'm Nathan Strauss, as always, joined by a man who did not throw a beer at one of England's more legendary pundits, Nick Vinden. Yeah, I mean, Graham Sunis can talk a big game about, you know, being threatened with violence at Old Trafford. But the man literally incited riots in Turkey at one point in his career. So I don't know if he has much of a leg to stand on. And I'm also joined by a man who did not miss a penalty, only to then score a world-class free kick in Caleb Rhodes. Hello. So I think it's only fitting that we start at Old Trafford, <laughs> one of the uh, the bastions. Do we, of... do we even talk about soccer on this podcast anymore? <laughs> like, not really. Honestly, the past like... two weeks, for everyone who says soccer is boring, I give you the last two weeks. Yeah, Dude, it's it's really been the most like WWE esque like two weeks of soccer, complete with like heel turns and massive like fan protests and. I mean, this is by far the most you know global media coverage I've ever seen soccer get since you know besides the World Cup. You know, I think this is the most like in season coverage I've ever seen like mainstream news outlets cover soccer, particularly in the U.S. Yeah, is this like all pandemic fatigue in a weird way? Well, no. So I think. I have a I have a combina- a, a okay. comment on okay. pandemic fatigue when once we get into this topic but yes I think there has been increased coverage because of the fact that there is I think pandemic fatigue has played into it but anyways Old Trafford one of the bastions of of English soccer um, in case you missed it yeah in case you missed it <laughs> somehow for you. um you know set for the biggest game in in English soccer you've got Liverpool playing Man United were United to lose, City would mathematically clinch the title. It's one of the, the big marquee games um, for NBC Sports, for Sky Sports across the whole world. And it comes amidst the backdrop of, you know, a series of protests against the Glazer family who have owned United for, what, going on 15 to 20 years now? It's like and 17-ish, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so about 15 to 20 and uh and somehow fans managed to like break down the gates of old trafford and storm the fitch and so they were sliding down the tarps they were throwing cameras i'm gonna push back on this because my understanding is that they just walked in yeah someone had opened the gate for them um, yeah, which is sort of interesting too. I was being a little hyperbolic, but well, the gate should have been open because there was going to be a game. Like it wasn't like I, this is a game day. Yeah, That's I think there's yeah. a lot of we can make a lot of par- I think we are going to make a lot of I think parallels to another event that was gate crashed on a January sixth in the United States. If only but it were Chelsea United. In this in this particular instance, this felt like like the most insurrectionist. Uh, comparison where like the people just like walked in with like very little resistance but continue Nathan 
at the end of the day, so the game ended up being postponed. You had fans basically like frolicking about with like bottles of Heineken in their hands. You had one or two fans sort of destroying property. Um, you had a fan get into one of the locker rooms somehow. And of course, due to COVID, there aren't supposed to be fans in the stands. Um, and, you know, security is sort of, I think, less of a focal point and more of an expectation that there's just not going to be anyone there. And so you have this backdrop of, you know, 10,000 protesters in the streets of Manchester. And all of a sudden, people realize like, oh, you can actually just go into the stadium and like go take selfies. And like there were stewards there, you know, maybe like, I don't know, 40 or 50 stewards. But stewards in England are not at all the same as they are in the States. And so, you know, they're very much non-confrontational. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of today sort of harkens back to hooliganism and sort of the the fan culture of like the 70s and 80s that led to some really tragic, um, you know, public events like Hillsborough. But you basically just had like waves and waves of like white Mancunian men enjoying themselves as if they were like having a fun day out. Um, and of course, the game ended up being postponed. They haven't yet come to agree on a date um, for which it can be replayed. But that's sort of, I guess, the base of today. And Nick, I think we should let you go first when it comes to providing some analysis for this. Sure. So I was, I was, you know, not, I'm going to be honest with you. I was not eagerly anticipating this game. Uh, as people who watch Liverpool Man United games know, these fixtures te- frequently tend to be very boring and pedantic. Usually a 1-1 or 0-0 draw. Uh, very rarely is Liverpool Man United the marquee fixture that the coverage actually, you know, hypes it up to be. Uh, however, I saw some very different scenes on my television this morning. And here's the thing. Obviously, you know, we don't condone, you know, trespassing, damage of property. I think, you know, there's that photo of the one police officer who had like a cut on his eye and he was talking to Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville. And obviously, you know, like reckless, you know, endangerments of people who are working at Old Trafford. You know, the stewards didn't ask for this. They're definitely not trained for this. I have a lot of sympathy for, you know, the people who have to, you know, stay behind and clean up the mess. However, I'm going to push back on the idea that this is like, um, like had shades of the like really horrible, the really horrible elements of hooliganism that defined, you know, fan culture in the 80s, particularly in in the English Premiership. Because for the most part, you know, 99% of what we saw outside of Old Trafford was peaceful demonstrations. Uh, It looked like a very, you know, good atmosphere. It looked like it was, you know, a productive protest. And even when, like, these guys came inside Old Trafford and, you know, like Nathan was, was saying, they were, like, jumping on the tarps. They were, like, strolling down to the pitch. It didn't look they like they, you know, I see I've seen already like some headlines on some videos and some articles where it's like all oh, violent Man United fans invade Old Trafford. To me, I didn't I didn't get an element of violence or maliciousness. I think what this really echoed to me is a sentiment of, you know, being a Liverpool fan, like we know a lot about Manchester United. We know a lot about their culture. We know a lot about their fans. They have been trying to, you know reckon with and exercise the demons of the glazer ownership for like nathan said like almost 20 years now and i think ferguson papered over a lot of the cracks and i think even when ferguson was there 
you had the the gold and the golden green movement, the Love United fuck the Glazers movement. These guys, these Glazers ownership, they've had like several protests against them with which like they haven't even you know taken the time out to recognize the fans concerns. This was the first the Super League protest and the backlash to the Super League was like the first time we really saw Joel Glazer address the fans directly. And I think what this shows to Manchester United fans and to the ownership is that this transgression with the Super League is not going away anytime soon. And I think, if anything, it's really stoked a fire under these fans who have been treated poorly by the Glazers for far too long. I mean, I think that's true. I guess the question that's worth asking is, you know, is breaking into the stadium a useful element? Does it add anything to this protest or does it detract? I think it does. So I think I it, does. Think it does. I think it does. I absolutely think yeah. it does. A, a, positive, a positive thing or a negative thing? It is a positive, a positive thing. Okay. It is. I have so I think my sort of take on this is that this is a protest that was both symbolic of what's happened in the last few weeks, but also I think more symptomatic of a sort of general movement in English soccer against, you know, billionaire owners. And it's also come in the form in the past of like protests against Mike Ashley of Newcastle, for example. You know, I think fans in general. So what happened last week at the Emirates? Right. Yeah, of course. It happened last week at the Emirates as well. It was a massive demonstration, you know upwards of 10,000 people from multiple teams as well. There were United fans there. There was some really great sort of synergy between these fan groups. Um, I think people are frustrated. The Cronkies, the Glazers, these sort of American owners in particular are thought of as not necessarily caring and definitely not having their feet on the ground. You know, there's that famous quote about how the Glazers didn't know the offsides rule when they took over. Um, and there was a recent quote from the Super League, where one of the executives, presumably Stan Kroenke, when he was at an Arsenal game, didn't know which color um, or which team Arsenal was. So stuff like that has sort of stoked this fire and this kind of protest where the end result was getting a game postponed, one of the biggest games of the year. I think that makes these owners take notice a lot more than just... Yeah, it hurts, it hurts the pockets of the Glazers. I think my only concern about this is the COVID issue where like, I don't want, I don't want these like hundreds of fans storming the ground that have been like sanitized and then like endangering the players. And I'm not sure what the COVID situation is like on the ground right now in England either. But by and large, I think there was like pretty minimal destruction of property. Like there were a few tripods smashed, but like, whatever. Like I really, I I really think that I'm not here. I'm not here. Like, I'm not going to like go like, say like oh like everyone go like invade your local stadium but i do think that like this was an organized way that didn't see anyone harmed but the message very clearly got through and importantly as a protest it was actually disruptive like it wasn't just sort of like sitting alongside a street being like oh you know like glazers out it was like actually making a little bit of a statement that should make them take notice financially and sort of rhetorically as well Right. And I think that's what really surprised me about the way NBC and Sky Sports covered this whole thing. I think the only people who really stood up for the protesters I, I saw on you know, social media was kind of quiet because of the obvious you know, English teams and people associated with them boycotting due to racism on social media. But the people that I saw you know, defending the protesters largely were Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher. Even on NBC, I think they sort of treated this as this insurrectionist uh violent 
moment, which I completely disagreed with. And the reason why they're doing that is because like they want to show this game. They want to make the money off this game. Uh, as Nathan pointed out, Liverpool Man United probably does the biggest rating for them of any game in the Premier League calendar aside from the Manchester Derby and maybe like Manchester United versus Arsenal. It's interesting that like two weeks ago, we had another protest at Chelsea, which is very disruptive. And the media covered that in an entirely different fashion. In fact, they like entirely supported it. And I think part of the reason why Chelsea, you saw Chelsea immediately pull out of the Super League was because they were feeling pressured from all sides. They were feeling pressured from the media who were intensely covering the protests and supporting it. And they were feeling pressure from, you know, the people screaming in the face of Petr Cech. I think, like Nathan said, in order for, you know, someone like the Glazers, someone like, or people like the Glazers, people like Stan Kroenke, who are notoriously stubborn businessmen who are really going to, like, in the face of adversity, you know, not back down, but instead be sort of immovable, and I think we've seen that with, you know, the amount of protests that have happened at Manchester United over the past 15 years, even down to, you know, Manchester United fans starting their own team in protest of the Glazers ownership, FC United of Manchester. I think stuff like this, where it's actually disruptive, it gets a game postponed and in turn, it hurts the wallets of the ownership and the broadcasters, I think can only be a good thing for this fan empowerment movement that we've seen or that we've talked about on this podcast for the past two weeks. Obviously, you know, people getting hurt notwithstanding. Okay, so I, I think I generally buy that argument. I guess my question to you guys then is, would you support a similar thing at your clubs? Yes. And I mean, it, 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 I mean, it came close to happening at, uh, at, at Arsenal. There's, it's sort of interesting from an Arsenal perspective because there has been that talk with, with Daniel Ek, who sort of tweeted out about, how he is willing to sort of put together an offer with the support of guys like Thierry Henry and Dennis Bergkamp to take over um, from the, from the Cronkies. And he is obviously someone who has sort of a, a not a checkered past, but um, his net worth isn't necessarily predictive of his ability to buy the, the outstanding shares of Arsenal because they're not entirely liquid. And a lot of it is tied up in Spotify and he'd probably have to team with a venture capital firm or, or fund of some sort to and sort of do some use some sort of debt leverage but arsenal was very much um home to a, a quote-unquote peaceful protest but it was still very powerful like there were tons and tons of people and arsenal i mean the emirates is located in like you know uh, uh it's very metropolitan it's easy access on the tube it um you know there were flares and marches and protests and i do think this is where it sort of comes back a little bit to the idea of pandemic fatigue in that I don't know that this would have happened if there were fans in the grounds, because I do think that there was a little bit of a novelty of like, oh, like la-di-da, like we're not supposed to be in this place, but now we can be, if you know what I mean. Um, and so like, I'm not entirely sure what a coordinated protest would have looked like. Um, someone, I, I saw someone, someone on Ars blog today suggested that they could do like a coordinated pitch invasion, but that poses a risk to players um, you know, there's always the good, the good old walkout, which is what Newcastle did a lot. So yeah, what I think, I think this, how you knew this was clearly not like a, this is like, like a fringe section 
of like the, the protest that was going on outside of Old Trafford where like these these guys like came in and then, like once they got on the pitch they were like holy shit we're on the pitch like what do we do now you saw like people like on their phones calling people you saw people like take match balls and like start booting them at the goal you saw people like climbing on the goal uh, you saw obviously like <laughs> the big meme right now is like the, where where the United corner flag <laughs> has been popping up in photos <laughs> around Manchester. Oh, that's so, yeah, my I favorite think, thing. That's my favorite thing. Seeing it show up at like different pubs and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I think it's hilarious. That's how you know that this wasn't like a very coordinated effort by these people. And I think a more coordinated thing that we could have seen is that they do a pitch sit in and it requires, you know, police to come in and actually remove them. <laughs> we I, part of me was like really annoyed because first of all this was happening during the arsenal game and nbc sports decided to go split screen but i it was, was watching, like cnn but, but was i was like- watching yeah but i was watching on my phone so i because i was at work <laughs> so <laughs> i was left to like a <laughs> hundred pixels worth of the arsenal game with no commentary while rebecca Lowe, like and who i'm generally a huge fan of I was actually shocked at sort of how reductive the NBC sports coverage was crazy, um, in comparison to Sky Sports, where you had Jeff Shreve sort of standing pitch side being like, yeah, you know, like it's really surprising. Jeff Shreve was chilling. She was just like vibing. <laughs> and Rebecca, meanwhile, Rebecca Lowe was like in the studio being like, these are criminals. Like, we are astounded. It's like, where the are the first, police? There was like, one period where she was like, oh, finally criminals. the police yeah. have shown up. And it was like seven, seven, you know, guys and like we were, we, it was like seven, you know, seven guys in like tracksuits, like being like, oh, yeah, you know, you can't do that. But like, it's shocking because you think about the difference between sort of protests and riots in America and sort of not to be like overtly political, but sort of the militarization of police and how that sort of affects the way that we view things like this. I just don't think that there's any kind of context for that in England or in English sports of recent memory. So I think a good thing that Musa Kwankwa said on Twitter was like, I'm very uncomfortable with sort of people like Rebecca Lowe, who he, whom he didn't name um, being like, there's a right way to protest and there's a wrong way to protest. Because like there was some, there were some, there, I think there's a, an interesting sociological um, you know issue at play here as well. But anyways, I was sort of mortified at, at how NBC Sports covered this and generally they do such a good job and that's why this was so surprising to me and i think that's the thing right i think that's the thing that's shocking about you know the how quickly the media and like these broadcasters have kind of turned on the fans who they were rallying behind two weeks ago once it starts to we really i think you know the big theme of the super league in my opinion is that there are bad guys and then there are like badder bad guys and i think it was you know how quickly are you know, the media going to turn and, and cannibalize on the fans. And I think we saw that today. They're all like, you know, anti-Super League because we know it's going to hurt their product that they're distributing. But once, you know, the fans try and reclaim power in, you know, their own backyard and then it affects, you know, what they're able to broadcast on a Sunday, that's when they're going to sort of turn and, and be critical of the fans. I just thought it was interesting. We could probably leave the discussions of Old Trafford there and sort of see what comes next in terms of protests. And the I think we're expecting some news from the government at some point about potential regulations and sort of their response to this as well, because I'm sure that the city of Manchester, who already have to deal with these, these sort of conflicts, like I know they can't schedule um, United in the city games at the same time on the same day. 
Um, I'm sure they were not too thrilled with how it ended up being portrayed. But honestly, like, so it's interesting. Nathan, was done. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting, Nathan, because the the Manchester mayor issued a statement recently or in the past couple hours or so. And he came out and he said, hey, like, obviously, we do not condone, you know, the trespassing and the damage of property and all that stuff. But he was pretty, like, lenient with, you know, the protest as a whole. And he he sounded, like, very supportive of this sort of protest needs to be directed at those in power. So I think even if it's just, like, point signaling for people in the British government, I think you're going to see, like, even if stuff like this happens, and hopefully, like, it doesn't happen again, I don't want, like, you know, endangerment of, of anyone in instances like this, but... I think this movement of fan power with the backing of, you know, certain members of the government and certain members of the media isn't going to go anywhere for the rest of the season. Absolutely. So we can leave that at that. And let's just quickly jump southward a little bit. And we know it was against a struggling Sheffield team. I think struggling is putting it mildly, but Gareth Bale might be back. What do we think? (laughs) I mean, I feel like there have been like, three or four times over the course of the past year where either Nick or I have been like, Gareth Bale, the man, the myth, the legend is here. He's back. I mean, honestly, I don't think he cares all that much about the Spurs. I think he said that in the press. He just wants to be like fit for the Euros this summer and whatnot. But the man scored a hat trick today for the first time since December 2012 in the Premier League. This, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, Sheffield United bad team really bad team but like Spurs will take the points and I think Ryan Mason whatever you think of him is kind of like yeah I'm just going to put my best players out on the field and I think for whatever reason Gareth Bale despite being I think one of the best players at Spurs was not a favorite of Mourinho and now he has nine Premier League goals and only 16 appearances so all in all I think it's been a pretty solid return and you know, I can't fault a player for scoring a hat trick. Yeah, I think there's still work to do for Spurs, um, considering they probably aren't going to stick with Ryan Mason for the long term, um, or at least I haven't heard anything to that effect. Uh, but you know, you can only do what's in front of you. They've got okay. We should talk about this though, because what if they do have to stick with Ryan Mason for the long term? Because as it's come out this week, they've tried for several approaches to several different coaches. Uh, I think most notably Eric Ten Hag of Ajax, who immediately signed a new contract until 2023 with the newly crowned Dutch champions. And I think it's interesting, Caleb, because right now the two favorites to take over Spurs are Scott Parker and Graham Potter. And (laughs) I think they've (laughs) that might not be the profile of manager that Daniel Levy thought would be available to him, you know, following the sacking of Jose Mourinho. So like, what's your take on, you know, the fact that Spurs can't really find a coach right now? I mean, they kind of put themselves in this situation. I mean, they bet big on Mourinho. We knew where Mourinho's been at in his last time at Chelsea, his short stint at Manchester United. And then it's, so I don't know. Levy was not expecting to have to sack Mourinho this year. I mean, no one ever expects to sack the person they've put in charge of their team. But it seems like he was caught completely flat-footed by the position that Spurs found themselves in and had no real plan B. And when you look at the squad, especially with the uncertainty over whether someone like Harry Kane stays, 
I can understand why it's not. And the fact that, you know, despite they're in fifth right now, but they could still, you know, end up outside of the European places or in the Europa League. Um, I can understand why it's not the most exciting position to take on, especially when whoever takes it on will be expected to finish in the top four. Right. And it's, it's not a desirable project, I think, for, for an inexperienced coach like Scott Parker, who would basically be jumping ship from presumably a relegated Fulham side to one of the biggest teams in, in, in the world, really, I guess, as much as it pains me to say that. And I think this goes back to what we said about Spurs for a long time. Under Pochettino, they had basically peaked in terms of their ability and their performances, in, and it culminated in that Champions League final. But I don't think that their squad has gotten significantly better since then. And I, I do think that they have they are sort of close to their market cap, if you will, um, in sort of all aspects of their team. I have questions about where they go in the future. And of course, that's not saying that I you know exempt Arsenal from this conversation either, because I think it's a sort of there is sort of a parable there. But we can leave that for another day. I think it's time that we talk about a newly crowned champion something that we predicted would happen all the way back last spring when we were looking at um, doing our football manager simulation of Serie A. It is Inter, your champions of Italy. And for the first time in about a decade, Juve are dethroned. Yeah, I mean, Antonio Conte really pulled a, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it to uh, Juventus this season. I think this was coming as we all thought it would. I think Inter obviously had a bit of a rocky start to the campaign uh, going out of the Champions League and not even falling into the Europa League. However, as I think Caleb has pointed out many times on this show, that meant that they they could entirely refocus on their league campaign. And they have done that in some style, I would say. I think they have the best team in Serie A by a mile. They have the best coach in Serie A, one of the best coaches in the world, one of my favorite coaches in the world in Antonio Conte and I think you can see like by some of the celebrations that he has with the likes of Lukaku, Lautaro Martinez, um, even like Christian Eriksen, Christian Eriksen who's come back into the team in 2021 and played a pivotal role that he has a real special connection with this team more so than he did at Chelsea and I would argue like more so than he even did at Juventus like in the latter stages of his Juventus tenure so I think this is great for Serie A I don't think another Juventus win especially with the quality of their team that really is just sort of become let's hope Juan Cuadrado can find Cristiano Ronaldo in the penalty box <laughs> with a cross um, which to be fair is not the worst strategy but no I mean yeah but I, I yeah. think you know I'd much rather <laughs> Conte's you know inter beat people 3-0 every week with some great goals. And I think Romelu Lukaku finally getting the recognition he deserves as a champion uh, is something that can only be good for Italian football going forward. Yeah, I would also like to point out that you guys thought Milan were going to win this league for a while. And I think I was the only person slightly skeptical of that in favor of Inter. But that aside, as you said, this, this has been a magnificent league campaign for them. I mean, they've only lost twice so far. They have the best defense, the second best offense, and you already shouted him out a little bit, but I think we really should highlight just how good Lukaku has been in the league this year. 
21 goals, second to only Cristiano Ronaldo. He's also tied for first in assists with 10 with Juan Cuadrado and Malinovsky of Atalanta. But point being, Lukaku has just been a step above every other player in this league the entire year. And I think after he's been continually questioned after, you know, his career at Manchester United, he is finally coming into his own as a top five striker in the world right now. And perhaps the best striker other than like Mbappe under the age of like 28. Yeah. I top think, three striker for me, Caleb. Personally. Yeah. I think there's yeah. something to be said about how his style has held up in Serie A and how he is maybe not the most technical when it comes to his first touch, but when it comes to his sort of pitch awareness, his, um, his technique, when it comes to finishing, he's an, an really an underrated finisher somehow. And I think people forget the kind of goals that he's capable of, but he really does remind me, and maybe this is a little bit of a lazy comparison, but he does remind me a little bit of like prime Balotelli in that he can hit okay, the ball. That's, I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta, I'm gonna step in here. <laughs> no, I think Balotelli played an entire season at Liverpool, so I'm very familiar with Mario Balotelli. And uh, let me let me tell you something. There is no world in which we should ever be comparing Romelu Lukaku at any stage of his career to Mario Balotelli. As much as I have a a soft spot in my heart for Balotelli, Lukaku is leaps and bounds beyond him. And I think even the first touch narrative that like Romelu Lukaku doesn't have a good first touch is just a myth at this point too. Because like, look at some of the ways that he sets himself up for these goals. You can also look at, you know, some of the assists that he's had. I think of an assist that he had to Lautaro Martinez in the Milan Derby a few months ago. That was incredible. He like barely picked his head up and found him from like 30 yards out. So I think this dude is, is uh, for me, you know, top 15 player in the world, top three striker in the world. And uh, any comparisons to quote unquote prime Balotelli should uh, be shelved. Point being, he is a very, 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 very good striker who's in the discussion as one of the best in the game right now. Crazy stat, crazy Lukaku stat. Since 2017, he has averaged over a goal a game for Belgium. Yeah, I mean, I wonder guy. if it sort of helps. I wonder if it sort of helps as well that Belgium also play a 3-5-2 and sort of how he fits into that system. Mm. Because I think he really does thrive with a player like Lautaro Martinez alongside, or even Alexis Sanchez, which they've sort of experimented with as well. Um, He definitely fits that two-striker tactic really well. And he didn't really ever get that chance at United. Yeah, I think that's also an important point, Nathan, is like how much circumstances and like home impacts a player. Because I think you know he his most successful periods in his career have been at Everton, which he really became you know a hero for them and someone who you know elevated that club into fighting for European places. And then obviously he went to Manchester United, didn't really work out from there, even though he produced good numbers, uh, particularly in his last season. And then I think at Inter Milan, he's found a place that is like truly his home. It's somewhere where he's settled in really well with the manager that I think he really jives with uh, tactically and also as a person. And I think this could be like where he's, where we see him produce some incredible numbers for the rest of his career in an inter-Jersey. 
Yeah, and I'd also like to highlight before we move on from from Inter, maybe how Conte has done a really good job managing this squad as a whole. I mean, there are obviously players like Alexis Sanchez and especially Christian Eriksen, who, of course, transferred in and looked like he was kind of on the rocks with the team, who have since become important squad players. And, you know, Eriksen even scored, I don't know if it was the winner, but the second goal in their The second goal in the 69th minute yesterday, yeah. yeah. And so I think Conte has been able to create, and this adds to Nick's point about, you know, feeling at home, a, like, really cohesive squad that really enjoys being with each other and you know it'll be interesting to see what moves happen this summer there are some older players like Kolarov or Ashley Young who might be like edging towards retirement but I think he has managed his players extremely well this year yeah and whether or not it's you know inherently a sustainable project I don't think matters that much I think the pictures of the interfaithful sort of reveling in, in the victory um, were, were really cool to see. And um, also, I mean, right now, Juve might not even qualify for the Champions League. So it's very possible that we see another, you know, wide open Serie A campaign um, next year. So that is something to keep an eye on. Yeah. Particularly um, with Inter's Chinese ownership group trying to get out of soccer entirely. Yes. Yeah. So, so very interesting stuff there. Um, but uh, why don't we move before we talk about the Champions in Europa League? Why don't we talk about another title race this one that is everything but defined i think we should turn to our resident la liga expert caleb rhodes in discussing basically i think probably the the most the tightest league race in europe in a really long time aside from liga right now aside from liga yeah yeah, maybe in the big three that we've seen i have a question for you yes does anyone want this la liga title we're trying to get rid of it. We're trying to give it to someone. Does anyone want this La Liga title? I think there are two teams that want this title. Real Madrid and Sevilla. I don't think anything I've seen from Atleti or especially Barcelona, who you know were in the driver's seat in the sense that they had the game in hand. And if they had beat Granada, all they would have needed was a draw against Atleti to still win the league. They they controlled this league and they gave it up in what was really a crazy game. That was the first points Granada have ever gotten at the new Camp. Atleti and Barca consistently show that at the key moment, they don't quite have the mentality to get it done. I don't think it's helped by the fact that someone like Komen really fiddles with his team in unhelpful ways when he makes his substitutions. As much as I like youth players and I like seeing Mariba getting minutes, I think every time he's been substituted on or started the past few games, it has completely disrupted our entire flow. And we have often conceded soon after he comes on. And at some point, correlation does become causation. But Madrid are just going to keep eking out shitty wins and no one's really going to pay them much attention. And my deepest fear, my seriously deepest fear, is that Barcelona are going to beat Atletico Madrid on May 8th in a few days. And because of that, Real Madrid are going to win the title because they'll be tied on points with Barcelona, but they have the tiebreaker from winning both Clásicas. And I think after a full season in which Atleti were the favorites for the longest time, and then Barcelona seemed like they were the favorites, it would only be 
fittingly sort of like ironic and sad for Real Madrid who have, you know, the worst offense of the three of them and a slightly worse defense than Atleti to win. And I also think we should... And they're in a PR debacle. Yeah, right now, yeah, and and we've forgotten that they're literally. I mean, they've always been the bad guys. They've been the bad guys since they were Franco's team. Like, they're always the bad guys. <laughs> like, literally, metaphorically, it's everything. But put all that aside for now. Moving past Real Madrid, we sh- we really should not forget about Sevilla, who are on seventy points right now. They have a game in hand. They win that. They're still within a point of Barcelona Real Madrid and are still in great form and are very, very much in this title race and probably benefit from not having eyes on them. So watch this space. I really think anyone could win, but I have a, a gnawing, gnawing feeling in my, I guess, my core that Madrid are going to win the title because of Barcelona. Yeah, and I get the sense that no matter who wins this league, if it's anyone but Atleti, it's going to feel like a little bit underwhelming. Like, yes, you mentioned that, you know, Atleti seemed to consistently sort of slip up and Barcelona sort of did their best uh, impression of through 60 minutes, at least today, of doing the same. But like, I don't feel like Barcelona has played like remotely consistently this year whatsoever. And I'm sure I'm sure you would agree with that. And yes, like obviously winning the league is like a huge achievement. It's even harder during COVID times and with a billion dollars of debt as well. It's, you know, it's obviously challenging, but it just feels like this league has been at Letty's to lose for so long and they're totally going to lose it. And so it's going to be like very weird to see who ends up on top, whether it's, you know, I would love to see Sevilla win it. It's not going to happen, but it's certainly possible. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, dis- really, I disagree. Really it's all going to come down. Yeah, I, I disagree slightly. I think the only bad storyline, and I don't just say this because I'm biased, would be Madrid winning. No, I know I don't. I'm not. I don't. I don't disagree. I think Madrid winning the league, especially on a tiebreaker of you know games played against Barcelona, would I think be absolutely crushing for any momentum that Ronald Koeman is trying to build up to head into you know the second season of his reign and the first full season of John Laporta's presidency. Caleb, you make an interesting point about the mentalities of both Atleti and Barcelona in this juncture. And it's just like, can we, at this point in the season, with four games left, even though Madrid have the hardest schedule with games against Sevilla, Villarreal, Atletic, and another team that I'm forgetting, I still think, you know, they're going to get the job done. I just think they have... Like they've won so much. There's there's a point, you know, when when teams stick together for long enough, like this Madrid unit has, with the exception of Cristiano Ronaldo and Gareth Bale, that like winning just becomes habitual. And once it gets into these tight moments, this team just knows how to win. And I think that's what's gonna happen here. And I think we're all gonna be looking back at, you know, January when Atleti had a 10 plus point gap and point the finger at Diego Simeone. And be like, dude, you had this thing wrapped up, but once again, you've capitulated to Madrid, which has been like the story of this team for the past, you know, 50 odd years at this point. Yeah, I, I will say on it, Letty, and we've talked about this before. I mean, we probably talked about this like three weeks ago or something where we're like, how do it, Letty, get more consistent, get out of their funk? And we were like, this entire thing rests on Jao Felix and 
that man remains benched. And I know Marcus Urente remains weirdly like one of the best everyman position players. Honestly, a team of Marcus Urentes would beat a team of any other player in the world right now. No, <laughs> I think it's do that true. Manager. I really should, but I think it's true. We could gotta do a team of Marcus Urentes <laughs> versus like a team of James Milner when he was like 30. <laughs> Except James Wilner can't score, and Marcus Llorente has... Like- he scored? No, that's what I'm saying when he was like 20, 28 to 30, because okay. he did score. Okay. Simeone has not unleashed the power that he has on this team. If they lose, I think the finger will have to be pointed a little bit at that. Uh, but point being, La Liga, very, very tight right now. Very, very exciting league to watch in the run-in why don't we do you want to do france first or do we want to do yeah let's do domestic leagues first and then all right domestic leagues and then champions league and europe league to wrap up so let's talk about france baby because this league (laughs) this league has more brawls per 60 minutes or per 90 minutes than any other league on the planet including one today between monaco and Lyon, who always seem to be in and around these sort of violent conducts where Pietro Pellegrini, Mattia De Sciglio, and Caleb's favorite, William Goebbels, were all sent off in the 95th minute. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's like an actual league title race going on with three match days left as PSG actually trail Lille by one point, and Lille are in the driver's seat in terms of controlling their own destiny as they've got relatively easy matchups coming up. They had a game against Lens, who are top five right now, and then Saint-Étienne and Angers, who are both um, mid-table or thereabouts. So it's going to be a very interesting and down-to-the-wire competition here. But why is Ligue 1 the way it is? Sacre bleu, man. What the fuck is happening in Ligue 1? <laughs> 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 We don't talk enough about this league, and I think people call it a farmer's league. (laughs) Oh, hey, people call it a farmer's league, but you know what? Everyone needs a good farmer in their life. League, uh, let me tell you something. None of these teams have money except for PSG. You look at at Lille, who are at the top of the division right now, are currently facing bankruptcy. You can read a very great Rory Smith piece in the New York Times about that. And also, their manager, Christophe Galtier, is publicly flirting with the job at OGC Nice. Uh, and he might take that at the end of the season, even if he does win the domestic crown with Lille. I don't know what's going on in this league, Nathan. I think a lot of it has to do with the uh, unrest at PSG at the beginning of this season. Uh, and you know the way Thomas Tuchel fell out with the sporting director, Leonardo, and certain parties in the team. And I think Pochettino has come in and done a fairly decent job, particularly in the Champions League. But as we saw uh, with his time at Spurs, it takes a while for him to really set up his system for consistent results. We didn't see, you know, the peak of the Pochettino, the Pochettino era at Tottenham for like, you know, three to four-ish years of that project. So I think, you know, bringing in a manager like Pochettino uh, someone who has a very de- defined way of like how he wants to drill his players, particularly when it comes to stuff like cardio, like Pochettino's teams run the fastest or run the most of you know any team in Europe aside from Marcelo Bielsa's teams. I don't think that's like quite a quick switch that you can just flip on if you're PSG. So I think you know while they've gotten better progressively under Pochettino, I don't know if it's going to be quick enough 
to counter all of this amazing young talent coming through at Lille at just the right time for them right now. You know, players like Jonathan David, uh, Bubakare Sumare in midfield, who's going to probably go to Leicester this summer. Uh, Sven Botman, who they brought in from Ajax, who's been a great addition at center back for Lille. So I think, you know, as a big last hurrah for this, you know, Lille class of 2020-2021, I think, you know, if they can outlast PSG, it'll be one of the great stories in football of the last few years. I also think it's all about the experienced players that they brought in. So obviously they they sold Victor Osimhen over the summer to Napoli and lost a bunch of goals there. But in what could be the shrewdest purchase of this season, they brought in 35-year-old Breck Yilmaz, who had only ever played in the Super League and in the Chinese League. And he has been so essential to this team, especially as Jonathan David has been prolific, but not that prolific. And, you know, Timothy Weah, kind of the same. And so they have like Barack Ilmaz, they have Jose Font. They just have a few experienced players in that team that I think given all of the issues that PSG had at the beginning of the year and the fact that they're constantly changing their lineups because they don't care as much about Ligoon, they are able to sort of develop a spine that has allowed them to succeed, certainly well beyond their means. Because when I look at Ligoon, Lille definitely don't have even the second best squad. I think they have a worse squad than Monaco. I think they probably have a worse squad than Leon. Um, so they're probably at best, like the fourth best team on paper in Ligue But honestly, they're doing great. And as Nathan mentioned, their schedule is rather favorable. Yeah, they did beat PSG um, a few weeks ago in a game which also culminated with a pair of red cards. Uh, I know Neymar got sent off in that game. Meanwhile, PSG still have to face Man City again. They've got Rennes, Rem, and Brest, as well as Montpellier in the Coup de France as well. So again, both teams very much in control of their own destiny. And I think Lille, obviously, if they could win these three games, they would be crowned champions, which would be another upset in terms of uh, new champions being crowned for the first time since Monaco. Speaking of Europe... It's going to be a very, very interesting week in European soccer. We had some surprising results in the Champions League um, and maybe some less surprising results in the Europa League. But let's start off by talking about City and PSG. City hold a 2-1 lead on aggregate, although I would say that it was not quite a deserved victory uh, for the citizens last Tuesday. Um, I mean, okay, I think PSG were by far the better team in the first half, but they also didn't score a second goal. Man City took their chances in the second half. I thought some people are a little harsh on the De Bruyne goal in sort of faulting Kaylor Navas, but I think it was one of those crosses in that was just in the complete no-man's zone where any City player could have gotten a touch and Navas had to be aware of that and it kind of drifted into the back of the net. I don't really fault him. And then... Their wall, PSG's wall broke down and Mara scored a free kick. So I don't know. I think City probably deserve this result in a lot of ways, mostly because PSG kind of let themselves down. I would agree with that, honestly. I think, you know, you look at that first half and just the way that PSG were playing largely without fear and they were closing City down. 
and they were making it really hard for City to, you know, beat the press and enact their own press on them. They were playing through City's City's defense really well, and that all just seemed to fade in the second half. I don't know if it was an energy thing, like a fitness situation, um, if Guardiola made adjustments, you know, really early in the second half by bringing on Alexander Zinchenko, who I think now is like way more of a traditional, if you want to call it like a traditional left back. Um, I think this was probably the moment that like we usually see City capitulate in the Champions League and they didn't do it this time and they had the opportunity to do it. And I think I thought, you know, oh shit, like it's coming. Like this is going to be the moment where City F up. And, you know, maybe that's still on the horizon on Wednesday. But I think, you know, they've met the adversity and turned it around. And now I think they're probably going to go on and win the Champions League off the back of this. Yeah, I mean, Mbappe did not have a single shot in this game. So that's not good. And then I think you just look at who each team has on the bench that could change the game up. Mauro Icardi, they chose not to bring on. But I think the question for the next game will be who replaces Gay in the midfield that can do that role. But then you look at Manchester City, who only made one substitution the whole game, which was Zinchenko. And they left Raheem Sterling, Gabriel Jesus, and Sergio Aguero, and Imeric Laporte, and Ferran Torres, and Fernandinho on the bench. And I compare that to like Pablo Sarabia, Moise Keane, Rafinha, Ander Herrera, Julian Draxler, and like, City have way, way, way more resources and they have the advantage in terms of away goals and I'm just not betting against them. I think that's. I think it's fair to say that City have a pretty compelling edge and I think PSG just simply didn't capitalize on that first half where they could easily have gone two or three nil up. So I think they are. They they really only have themselves to blame and it was a really foolish red card as well from Gay who I think played a pretty solid game up to that point but it was just so careless and it was a no doubt uh, red card upon seeing the replay although I didn't sort of I didn't catch it in real time but the replay made it pretty clear but the other game I think is basically a complete toss-up for me um, you've got Chelsea holding a one goal um, you know the away goal lead right now 1-1 with Real Madrid allegedly allegedly Sergio Ramos could be back in contention um, along with Furlan Mendy for this game and that would be a huge addition to Real Madrid side that just lost Danny Carvajal for the season. So guys, 1-1 at Stanford Bridge, who do you guys have going through? Chelsea. Even though I just made this whole spiel about Real Madrid not like 10 minutes ago <laughs> about them knowing how to how to pull things like this out of the hat and that's don't get me wrong, like that's totally on the cards too. Like if any team can go into Stanford Bridge and get a get a uh, a favorable result that is this experienced Real Madrid team. I think um oh shit, I'm doubting myself now. I don't know. Yeah, see, I would pick Madrid, but Kale, I want to know what you I want to know what you have to say. I think this is really one of the most difficult like honestly, one of the most difficult games to call because on the one hand, you have a Madrid team that has a bunch of injuries. It's not that deep, but has so much experience. And like, can you really compare a midfield of Modric, Casemiro, and Kroos to Mason Mount, Jorginho, and Conte? Like, some people will say yes, but I say no. Um, and then, well, I think the, Conte. I think the important thing is like Conte played absolutely out of his skin in that first leg. Yeah. And I think Mason Mount was really, really good as well, and so was Pulisic. 
Yeah. However, the 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 question from you know someone who I think watches Madrid far more frequently in, in the UK Caleb is that like they've only conceded more more than one goal in two games under Thomas Tuchel, and they've very rarely conceded goals at home aside from that freak five two West Brom game in which they went down to ten men. So do you think Madrid, you know, knowing Chelsea's defense is very good at home, can score, you know, more than one goal in this tie? Or in this yes, game? yes. So I think there's a few things. One, I think Benzema is the best player in this across both squads, like by a pretty decent margin, in all honesty. And I think he could score in this game. Um, I also think you have to recognize that, like, Chelsea's offense has not been especially good under Tuchel and it blows a little hot and cold. So it's hard to know how like whatever combination of like Havertz, Siek, Pulisic, Werner, maybe even a Giroud who I think could be in contention for a game like this, what they'll actually do. The thing we need to talk about though is a player who actually knows Stamford Bridge quite well. Quite, quite well. Not Thibaut Courtois, but his compatriot. Oh my God, <laughs> Nick! Nick, that was like that was like served up on like a silver platter. And he played really well this weekend. He played too. really totally well this weekend. And so, like, if there's anyone who will be completely unfazed, yes, it's Eden Hazard. And like, I have a really, I have a really <laughs> sneaky feeling that this is the game that makes Hazard's Madrid career. Like like oh, hat trick oh. at Stamford Bridge, like a legendary game. <laughs> that would be insane. That would be pretty baller. I mean, I think it totally could happen. So I was curious because I'm in New Jersey where betting is legal. I, I have the DraftKings sportsbook, <laughs> and I'm. I just have to preface that um, yeah. because I was curious to see what the betting market said in terms of who was favored for this game. Chelsea are favorites, but they are not. They're not minus. They're they're plus one twenty. So it's still pretty long odds. And Madrid are plus 240, while a tie is plus 235. So Chelsea are slight favorites in the betting market. But again, the fact that there isn't like an actual favorite, like in comparison, City are minus 140 and PSG are plus 350 underdogs in that tie. So pretty, yeah. it's, it's, I think the betting market reflects how just how much of a toss up it truly is. Yes. Yeah. The point being, I, I think Madrid are going to go through, which is, I think, what I predicted a few weeks ago, in part because I just want to be like consistent with the fact that I've learned to not bet against Madrid, either literally or in a more just commentary sense. But I do think Eden Hazard is the kind of main character of this game. He's the protagonist. He is the protagonist. Back to our discussions of Tenet from... From like, <laughs> oh my God. he's gonna he reverse months time. Ago. <laughs> back to his form in 2017. It's gonna be a temporal inversion. Yeah, dude, he's gonna invert himself, and it's oh, gonna be crazy. Um, so I, I have Madrid going through, but I think this what makes this game compelling is that it truly seems so uncertain, and I would yeah, say neither I team agree. truly has a massive advantage going in to it. So. Uh, I agree, and I think we can wrap things up by taking a quick look at the Europa League. I think it's a safe bet to say that United on the backs of a 6-2 win in the first leg are likely home and dry uh, against Roma, even though Roma have in the past had a flair for No, the they're dramatic. not coming back. Let's just get on to Emery yeah. and Arteta. Come on. <laughs> Can we really discount those two away goals, though? I, do you think they're going to put up four? 
I mean, they've done it like half their squad. They lost like half their starting 11 in the first like 30 minutes of the United game. Dude, they can find some Italian boy on the street. Anyways, so the real interesting tie and one that gives me heart palpitations just thinking about Arsenal down 2-1 after the away leg just need to prevent Villarreal from scoring and score one goal. Uh, They're coming off the back of a (laughs) two-goal win against Newcastle this weekend. I think it is... I think it is unlikely. <laughs> they ain't doing it. <laughs> they're, they're not doing it. Villarreal is going through. So I actually think I actually think Arsenal are going to go through. They have a forty percent chance, according to five thirty-eight. Every baby, dude, it's happening. Good evening is returning no, see, to the Emirates so the reason, in full so, force. So Arsenal, Arsenal lost two-one, but it was a very self-inflicted two-one, and they were also playing strikerless because. Aubameyang was still recovering from having literal malaria and Lacazette is injured. But Aubameyang is back. He had a goal and an assist today. I think Arsenal go through, but I do not think they make it easy. I think this one finishes 2-1 regulation and Arsenal pull it out in extra time. This 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 comment could age very poorly in the next few days, but no. Like Villarreal, I think they're going to win like 2-0 at the Emirates. I think Gerard Moreno truly has been one of the top players in Europe this season, and he is going to show off. I also think, and this is a crazy statement that I'm about to make, I think the game on Thursday illustrated just how much more experience Unai Emery has in ties like these than Mikel Arteta, who I think really exposed himself as being, you know, an experienced coach. Unai Emery... He knows Arsenal. He's coming back to the Emirates. He's going to want to make a statement with this Villarreal team. He has the players to do so. And I just think he's going to... This man knows the Europa League. This man is the king of the he Europa League. He is the Europa League. League. This is his domain. And I don't think, you know, Mikel Arteta having dug himself into a massive hole, <clears throat> having dug himself into a massive hole in the first leg, has quite enough nous to dig Arsenal out of this hole against someone as experienced as Emery in this competition. I think those are all fair critiques. I think maybe I'm speaking a little bit more as a fan and less as a, an objective pundit, but nonetheless, I will be on the edge of my seat. That is until we concede two goals in the first 10 minutes and then immediately, um, you know, collapse as we do, but we're already over an hour. So I think we should wrap up. It's a big week for soccer. It's a huge next seven days we've got barca letty we've got basically the stakes of many leagues um are up for grabs but until next time i have been nathan strauss caleb reds football is nothing without the fans good evening i've been nicky vinden good night